All right, so in our fruit series, we are clarifying the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as Jesus and Paul do, as fruits of his indwelling. We're taking a look underneath the hood to see the engine that's driving and powering the Christian and the non-Christian. So as you can see the contrast, last week we began with love, right? And we saw that while both Christians and non-Christians love, and they love deeply, and we're not meant to diminish any of the character of a non-Christian through this series. Non-Christians love, and they do love deeply. They love their own deeply. But the love that God is creating in the Christian through the Holy Spirit is fundamentally different. It is even love for the enemy, those that you think are odious to you, and it's also for those that you think are undeserving of love. And the same is going to go with the second fruit that the Holy Spirit creates in Christians, which is joy. And on and on. You'll hear us every single week as we move on to patience and etc. Today we're going to look at the joy of the Christian and the non-Christian. And we begin by realizing that like love, since joy is a fruit of the Spirit, this means that like love, joy originates in God. And that's why we're focusing on Psalm 16 this morning. The idea is this, is that God is joy. And you have to remember that God created you as his image bearer. You show something to the world that black holes and constellations and basset hounds cannot. You show the image of God. This means that in a sense, both the Christian and the non-Christian, though broken as we are, as broken, flawed image bearers of God, you and I do have some capacity for joy. Even if you are on the opposite of the spectrum today and believes that joy is just optional, if you get joy in this life, great. If you don't, great. There's a reason why you believe that. We'll get to that this morning. We get some glimpses of what real joy, adversity-conquering joy looks like, even from the life of a non-Christian. Take a mother giving birth to a child. Oh, has biology given us a beautiful example of this. A child from conception is a gift from God. Amen? Doesn't matter the factors that have led to the conception of this child, no matter how horrific, nor how matter how beautiful. Children are not at fault, and they are gifts from God. A child from conception to delivery, ladies, brings such discomfort, right? And that discomfort grows and grows and crescendos into pain, right? And just because you've gone through labor and delivery doesn't mean that discomfort nor that pain ceases to be. You may have after effects physically for years or decades. And the emotional pain of being a mother, right? Cannot fathom. Can you wonder why Jesus had to be born and for Mary to experience those things and then watch her son die on a cross? But right alongside all that discomfort and all of that pain is joy because of a child, that a child was born. Because we are broken image bearers of God, you and I have a polarizing experience with joy. On one extreme, we call this asceticism. It's big in the East. The view is that joy and pleasure are not pursuits of life. Duty is. You do your duty to your family. You do your duty to your country. In fact, in the East... Many, millions, billions of people believe that joy and pleasure are illusions. They're not real. They're mirages to distract you from reality. Joy is bad. Pleasure is evil. What it does, it actually ties yourself down. It ties who you really are down when you focus on the pleasures of your body. Therefore, the goal of life in the East is to empty yourself of such joy and pleasures of your body. But those of us who are immersed in Western philosophy, you have it, I think, doubly as bad. 
because in the West, because of Europe, you and I believe in this idea, though you may not know it, it's called Stoicism. And here's what Stoics believe. Joy and pleasure are not points of life. Duty is. And you must go through whatever it is that you're doing and what you're experiencing. You must bear with it. You must survive it. You must get through it. Joy and pleasure are never ideas that a Stoic believes and focuses on. Now, that's one extreme. But then in the other extreme is something called hedonism. And here's what the hedonists believe. And once again, this is Greek philosophy. This is actually humanism as well. Hedonists don't say joy is an illusion. Hedonists say joy is essential. Go get it. Whatever feels good for you, you got to do it. You have to experience. You got to itch the scratch and scratch the itch. And in America, for a hedonist, that pursuit may vary. It could be food and alcohol. So what do you do? You work, 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 so you can eat and drink and be merry. It's not just Shakespeare. It actually comes from the Bible. From food to sex to money to hobbies, whatever that path is that makes you feel good, you must pursue that. That's the Americana culture, right? And America says, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you just do it. Just don't hurt anybody. It's a strange standard. It's a strange objective law, but we do this in America. And here in the church, we find people from both extremes, those who shun joy and shun pleasure and say it's about duty, and those who have given their lives to let us eat and drink for tomorrow we could die, and both kinds of people get saved and get into a church family. The gospel has something harsh to say to both extremes. The gospel says, you're kind of right, but you're all wrong. That's what Christianity says. The gospel says neither view is fully true. On one hand, joy and duty are not optional pursuits, and they're not exclusive to one another. Like if you have to pursue duty at the expense of joy, and you have to, uh, to pursue joy at the expense of duty. The gospel says they're one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. And as a Christian, your flesh is going to struggle today. So even though last week's point was that you got to wrestle with this idea that Jesus presents about love, it's still the point today. you got to struggle in your flesh today between whatever extreme of joy that you currently hold. Because you most likely struggle with one of those two extremes. Your flesh may scream at you to pursue pleasure as the ultimate and objective point of your life you got to feel, 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 and scratch the itch as much as you can. Or you may struggle with the idea of you got to push away the idea of joy. you got to push away the idea of pleasure. You've been disappointed too much. It hasn't worked out the way that you wanted to. And here's what we have to embrace. That our Lord died. Jesus died in part to restore the pursuit of joy and duty as the same pursuit. See, the East has it wrong, but so does the West. So today, we are going to define joy, both the secular, the godless idea of joy, and the biblical idea of joy. And we are going to see what joy looks like for the Christian and for the non-Christian. And we're going to see how similar and different joy is for both kinds of image bearers. We're going to see the Christian and the non-Christian both have a deep capacity for joy because we are both image bearers of God. It's not that non-Christians are like sub-people. They're equal image bearers, worthy of respect and dignity. And then we'll see how the Holy Spirit accomplishes the restoration of true joy in the Christian so that you can know what the pursuit of real joy looks like and what it doesn't look like. So you can know what the filet tastes like and what that measly drive through burger tastes like. Or as Tolkien says it, so that you can realize that all that glitters in this world is not gold. So you can stop being attracted like a moth to a flame to lesser pleasures that are never going to satisfy you. That's where we're going today. All right, amen? All right, let's take a look at our proposition. The idea that's going to drive our text today is this. Is that the Holy Spirit gives adversity-conquering joy...
of Jesus to his people, that is you. If you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, that is you. As you love and trust his promises. Now, I needed to find joy from the secular point of view for a moment. So I researched and read leading psychologists and also dictionaries, psychological dictionaries, you know, psychology dictionaries, just trying to get a bent in an idea of what do people who say that are secular, that have no religious horse in the race, say about joy? And here is kind of a conglomeration of a lot of things that I saw. Something like this. That joy, this is secular, joy is an emotion that is evoked by a person's perception of their well-being, of success, of good fortune, or it's evoked by the prospect of possessing whatever it is that they desire. So we see four things really playing around that's tied up into a secular idea of joy. Your perception of your well-being, your perception of your success, your perception of your good fortune, or the idea, the prospect of you getting what it is that you're after. And secular leading psychologists say, if you are experiencing one of these four things, the result in you is joy. But let's take a look underneath the hood of this definition for a moment. Now remember, even non-Christians experience joy because they are image bearers of God. That is the gift of God to their lives. That they somehow experience yet reflect a broken image of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, love and kindness, long-suffering, all those things. But the joy that we experience as human beings is an incomplete joy, a broken joy. And you should hear that at play in the secular definition. Now, it begins by saying joy is an emotion, joy is a feeling. And you and I as Christians can affirm this biblically. It's something that you feel in your heart, in your being, who you really are. But I want you to see for a moment how limited, how subjective, secular joy really is. Let me just do this by just addressing it through questions. Just what your pastor does. He has lots of questions. What happens to your joy if you are not experiencing well-being? Whatever the secular person defines as well-being, physical, emotional, physiological, Social, emotional, whatever, however they define well-being, what happens to joy if you're not experiencing that idea? What happens when you are not experiencing whatever your conception of success is? What happens when you're not experiencing whatever you define as good fortune, deifying fortuna, the Latin goddess of luck? What happens to joy if the prospect of whatever it is you want to possess seems so far away from you, that's outside of your reach. What happens to joy when your perception of reality is blurred and impacted by your pain, by your physical pain, by your emotional pain? What happens to your joy? One thing that whether it's non-Christians or Christian thinkers have in common is the idea is that pain destroys joy. Pain destroys the experience of joy. Non-Christian joy, because of the fall, it is subjective. It means something a little different to everybody, because it's about how you define well-being. So joy is all over, but it's also unattainable. It's no wonder that those in the East, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism, or the Stoics of the West, have taken up the idea of aestheticism, that pleasure is an illusion. Pleasure traps you, ties you down, forget about it. But as Christians, we say this definition of joy is not enough. So here is what I've pulled together as a biblical definition for Christian joy. Christian joy is a feeling, and we can have that in common with non-Christians. It is a feeling, but it's not produced by us. It's produced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Where the Christian experiences real and lasting satisfaction in Jesus, even in the presence of your pain. Can I say it one more time? I do see some of you taking notes. Christian joy is a feeling 
produced by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where the Christian experiences real and lasting satisfaction in Jesus, even in the presence of your pain. See how distinctively different Christian joy is from secular joy? Up and down, depending on your perception and experience of your well-being and what you want out of life, whereas Christian joy is steadfast. The difference between the secular and Christian understanding of joy is Jesus. The secular experience of joy puts the onus on you. You trying to work out, you trying to possess whatever it is that you desire. Because we're a humanistic society. It's all about consumerism. You consume, consume, consume to feel happy. We can actually, as Christians, have something in common with the East and say, the East says, that's a, that's a joke. Life is not about consume, consume, consume. They're more focused on duty and family. And we can see how that's a little bit more noteworthy and true. The effect is Jesus' joy can be experienced as a Christian even when you're going through adversity, even when you are going through pain. And I think this is why God has allowed, as one of the consequences to Eve, for disobedience to God's presence and God's word, for there to be joy and pain commingled in labor and delivery. In this moment, joy and pain are side by side, like two sides of the same coin. And the very presence of this fact biologically does challenge the idea of asceticism and stoicism. That joy and pain can be powerfully present side by side. That you can do your duty as a mom and it be a joy. Now to the Christian, the Holy Spirit works the adversity conquering joy of Jesus into them. But we got to tackle the idea that pain destroys pleasure. If you're sick, which some of you have been recently, you can identify this, food doesn't taste the same, Right? I hate being sick. I love to taste my food all the time because i got a little bit of hedonism in me. <laughs> if you're hurting physically, physical comfort doesn't comfort you as it should. If you're broken emotionally, the comfort of your loved one does nothing to your heart, right? Why are we like this? Why are you like this? Why am I like this? Because the Bible's true. The Bible's been right all along. And we've been wrong all along. Our culture has it wrong. Because we're much more complex than what our culture supposes. And we're much more complex because we're made in the image of a complex God. That's why we're like this. It's because you and I are in the flesh. And we like to live in extremes. Pain, when it comes down to it, the reason why many of us don't like pain is because our flesh is too prideful. We take too much pride in our flesh, in our fleshly experiences of satisfaction or the lack of satisfaction. We are conditioned in the West to think that if you're experiencing pain right now, physically or emotionally, that you're doing something wrong. And America has made it a multi-billion dollar business through therapy and book writing to all these how-tos for how you fix that problem. Because if you're feeling wrong, physically or emotionally, you are doing something wrong. But that's a lie. And we have so much information from the Bible to inform you that just because you're experiencing pain does not mean that you're experiencing something wrong. Amen? What about Joseph? What about Job? What about Ruth and Naomi? Right? What about Jeremiah, if you're reading through Jeremiah right now with us in our year-long reading through the Bible? What about John the Baptist? And most of all, what about Jesus? Right? But to be a Christian, the declaration and the experience of pain is where the gospel starts. Jesus took on flesh to experience pain, your pain in particular. Jesus took on flesh to experience wrong, 
specifically the wrongs that you have done. It means nothing less to be a Christian than these two statements. Jesus took on flesh to redeem his people and by his spirit to restore their capacity to fully experience and to reflect his character, love, joy, peace, patience. This is the ministry, the job and the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works the adversity, conquering joy of Jesus into his people as they keep their focus on him. So let's turn to Jesus before we peel back to David. I want you to take a look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is embedded into our covenant and our affirmations as Christians at Heritage. When we, next Sunday, when we read one of our affirmations to talk about I will embrace my church's strategy for conquering adversity, it came out of a sermon I preached you years ago on Hebrews chapter 12. You may not remember this, or maybe you weren't present. So we have to keep revisiting these things. Let's see it in Jesus. The Hebrews writer says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith. And here it is. Who for the duty? No, no, no. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame of hanging naked, ridiculed, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think the writer of Hebrews is pretty clear. You and I sin, and you cannot be a Christian without that acknowledgement and the feeling of utter ruin and devastation because of it. Sin encumbers us, it weighs us down, and sin entangles us. You are involved in things you should never be involved in, and it proves that sin entangles you. We are running a race, and the Hebrews writer says that sin loads you down with weight to jeopardize your ability to finish the race. So what's the solution? The writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's why as Christians, no matter what culture or what time period we live in, we are Christians 21st century in the West. And we have a set of visual challenges every single day. A choice every single day of what we will put in front of our eyes. The Hebrews writer consistently calls on you to fix your eyes on Jesus most of all. Put your eyeballs on him most of all and your life will be changed. Today, we are going to see what fixing our eyes on Jesus means. But for a moment, you have to consider, why do I need to do this? When, like the disciples, my eyes get drowsy and sleepy in the Garden of Gethsemane, why should I keep it fixed on Jesus? Why should I work against my body and what's telling me to do right now to keep my eyes fixed on him? And here's why. Jesus experienced suffering and shame on the cross. That's why you need to do this. Yet he endured the suffering and the shame that he experienced on the cross. And the question you and I have to ask is, how did Jesus do this? If sin encumbers and sin entangles and Jesus took on our sins, and if Jesus on the cross experienced shame, how did he get through it? Now, saying, well, he's God. That dishonors what Jesus did for you excusing it away by claiming his divinity and his deity in the situation shortchanges God. And it dishonors him. It disrespects him. Saying Jesus is God doesn't do justice to how the scriptures are clear about how he survived suffering. How do you survive it? He set joy before him and joy alone. On the cross, experience just not all of my sins, not just all of my sufferings, but of every single Christian who would ever exist, past, present, and future, simultaneously on the cross, that definitely challenges the secular, Western, or Eastern definition of joy. By all measurements, he should experience the absence of joy in this moment. Yet he set joy before him. And that is what enabled him to endure 
your adversity and my adversity and your sins and my sins and what the enemy would do to him through them. That's our strategy, Heritage. Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. This means the Holy Spirit is going to produce in you the same kind of faith that Jesus displayed and exhibited in the most excruciatingly painful moments of history, suffering on the cross. The Holy Spirit is working in adversity, conquering joy into you, guaranteed by the life and the death of Jesus. And you exhibit that every time you wake yourself up, every time you open up your Bible, even though you have the headache, even though you continue to pursue God when it feels like the people in your life are just killing you. You're proving adversity, conquering joy in those moments. And that's what today is about. Let's get to point one. In point one, you're going to see the Holy Spirit's presence and his promises is what creates true joy to fight adversity. So let's go to David's song. Armed with everything you know that David experienced in his life. This was an earlier psalm. Not later King David, but soon to be reigning King David. But let's turn to Psalm 16 to see the presence of God and the promises of God in the relationship to our pursuit of joy. We begin with affirming a couple things. One, God is joy. That God is filled with joy. And God gives joy that enables those who love and follow him to endure adversity. Therefore, you and I are not Stoics. We reject that aspect of Greek philosophy. And we are not aesthetics who want to shy away from the world and the experiences of the world into our own little cloister or convent and just throw away everything the world has to offer. We fight those temptations. And if we are hedonists, we make God our ultimate pursuit of joy. Let's look at verse 11. I know I read 8 through 11. We're going to start with 11 and then go back to 8. David prays, you will make known to me the path of life, which means he's not currently experiencing it. There's a different path that he feels that he's on, and it's death. This is future. But look what he says about God here. In your presence is fullness of, you say it, joy. In your right hand are, you say the word, pleasures forever. Definitely different than your current understanding of God and the people in your life who have really no relationship with God like to say about Christianity and about God. God is joyless. God is luckluster. And you can go and explore all the experience of the world and they offer something better than God. The Bible's got it right. They've got it wrong. But the question is, do you have it right or wrong? Listen to what David says about God. In God's presence is fullness of joy. Not a little tiny bit of joy. Fullness. Full capacity of joy. This means God is joy. The aesthetics have it wrong. The Stoics have it wrong. Joy is fundamentally wrapped up with who God is. An experience of God, therefore, will always be an experience of joy. Now, this is running counter to what your flesh currently believes. Because you're on one extreme or another. We're extreme people. And it really depends on what you have believed for 15, 20, 25, 50, 70 years of your life about joy and the experience of joy. You are tempted to believe that the experience of God, if you experience it, if you follow it, it's going to lead to a boring, lackluster life where you don't get to do the things that you want to do. And, and part of that, you're right, but you're all wrong. You're all wrong. God's presence is filled to the brim with joy. Now look at what David says next. At God's right hand, in God's right hand, is pleasure. Forever pleasure. Eternal pleasure. For the ancients, and I think still for those in the East, the right hand is a representation of power. Of who you really are. What you're able to accomplish and achieve. The right hand is a symbol of that. And David says, what is the power, 
the very representation of God here, it's pleasure. It's joy. So should we be hedonists? Yes and no, depending on what you mean. But this is what we have to acknowledge. Once again, your flesh will tempt you to think that the Christian life is not a life of pleasure. And your flesh has got all wrong. All wrong. God's power, God's presence is joy and pleasure. David has come to know this. So let's peel back to verse 8 so we can see how David came to know this. Verse 8. How? He set the Lord continually before him. That's how he figured it out. Not just once a week on Sundays, if you decide to come. Continually set the Lord before me. And look at this. Because, look at the right hand. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Do you see what's happening here? The osmosis, the transformation that's going from God to David. Let's talk about it. One thing we learn about David is that he continually set the Lord before him. And to experience joy, true joy, this too must become your experience. Because David set God continually before him. Since David constantly focused on God, do you see what just happened to David's right hand? At this point in time, David has a lot in his right hand. Let's recount it. A sling and a stone. You saw what he accomplished with that, right? After the sing of the stone, eventually he'll be able to pick and grip Goliath's sword. He can cause some major DPS with that, right? Y'all don't even know what DPS is. Yeah. A couple of you do. Okay. Currently, literally David's right hand are his mighty men. Men who would go across enemy lines into his hometown just to get him a drink of water. These men have slain thousands. They're all at his right hand. But does David mention any of this? No. One thing is at David's right hand right now, and that's God. And look at the effect. At God's right hand is joy and pleasure. David has continually set God before him since he was a boy. David's right hand is now changed. He doesn't boast about the sling and the stone, wielding Goliath's sword, or the dozens of mighty men at his disposal. He makes his boast God being at his right hand, God being his power. And look at the effect. Because of this, David will not be shaken. But that's exactly what pain and suffering seek to do in you. Pain and suffering seeks to shake you. Pain and suffering stifles your experience of true joy and true happiness. But not for David. That's why you have to recall all that David has gone through in his life until this point. David is still saying, joy, joy. Why? Because David has made his ultimate pursuit of joy to be his God. That's why God is found in the right hand. Not a bottle of alcohol, not the dollar bill, not your job, whatever power you think you wield in this life. He's the future king, and he didn't consider that to be his right hand. God was his right hand. David focused on God, and God became his power and his pain. And because God was David's power and pain, he experienced joy. And now you got to see it. Verse 9, therefore... Because of verse 8, I can say verse 9. That's what therefores mean. My heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Now, this may be strange because we're not Jewish to talk about our glory. Glory in Hebrew is kabut. It means the heaviness of who you are, the weight of who you are, who your true being. That's what glory means for a good Hebrew. All right. Look at what happens when David focuses on God. Look at what happens when God becomes David's right hand. David's heart is glad. David's being rejoices. Non-Christian joy is destroyed by pain. Non-Christian joy laments because they're not able to work out their perception of well-being, their perception of success. They didn't get the job, so their joy is destroyed. 
They get the pay raise to Seir. Their joy is destroyed. The relationship isn't turning out the way they wanted it to. So joy is destroyed. That's non-Christian joy. It's a limited joy. But Christian joy is different. David was a king with no kingdom. David was a king who was hunted by his father-in-law to murder him. Because he was the king who wanted to retain control. He hid in caves for years. Cave hopping. Does that sound like how those in America would define a happy, successful, and joyful life? America would call David a loser. Why not just give up on God? Abdicate to Saul. He'll be happier, right? Despite this, in God, David found joy and pleasure in the midst of all of this, and it helped him to fight adversity. Once again, look at the effect. Because God was David's focus, because God became the basis of David's strength, his right hand, David experienced joy, and he experienced security. Do you see that? That is what joy does to the soul. Let's look at verse 10 now. Because who could David be referring to in this verse? You will not abandon, leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The experience of God as David's joy didn't merely or only give David security in this life, but in the one to come. Do you see that? David is certain that even in death, God will not abandon him. David is certain that death would cause him to grow and not decay. What basis at this point biblically, what basis does David have to prove this? We call this prophecy. He's pointing to something in the future as a basis for him to say something now. What David felt here, Jesus experienced fully. Jesus was forsaken, but he was resurrected. So what do we learn? When the Holy Spirit is the engine that powers and drives your life, you can experience this kind of joy, even in the face of adversity and even in the face of death. So if you don't get the job, it's okay. If you realize that relationship isn't going where it should go, it's okay to drop it. It's okay if the money isn't there this year. Or fill in the blank with whatever your perception of joy and pleasure and success is. Your joy becomes something else. David experienced it. Jesus experienced it. So therefore, here at Heritage, what we encourage you towards is to not be like the aesthetics. Seeking to distance yourself from joy or pleasure. It's not an illusion. It's not truly tying you down. But on the other hand, we're not going to be like the hedonists that seeks to make lesser pleasures the ultimate pursuit of joy. We will make it our aim to experience joy in Jesus. That's what heritage is going to be about. It is the Holy Spirit's gift and ministry to work this experience into you. Christian joy is different than non-Christian joy. Do you see it now? And can you begin to articulate it to that non-Christian in your life? Because right now, they're making mud, plot, mud pies in the slums of London, like Lewis says. And they have no idea that the Father's offer of a holly at the sea is better than them making mud pies. They think that their joy is better than your joy. They think you're the boring, lackluster person on the planet. Christian joy is a joy that comes to life in adversity. Paul says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So we reject the idea that life is the pursuit of feeling good at all costs. But we reject the idea that joy and pleasure are an illusion and, and weighs you down to this world, and you must be freed from it. Joy is real, and joy is a real experience. And that experience doesn't have to diminish because of the prospect of pain in your life. The difference is joy in Jesus Produced in us by his spirit, when he truly indwells us, when we continually set the Lord before us, like David. And now we're going to turn to application 
to the ultimate son of David. Not Hezekiah, not Solomon, not Josiah, but Jesus. Let's get to our application. So in response, the call today is for you to devote yourself to loving and keeping, not your word, not America's word on this, but Jesus' word to experience his full joy. So I want you to turn and to see how clearly Jesus speaks about joy and the relationship of joy to his word and the relationship of joy to the Holy Spirit. So then we get why Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We're going to turn to the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter. We're going to look at some verses before verse 11, but we're going to start at verse 11 and peel back like I did to you with Psalm 16. John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken. Clear? Why did Jesus speak? Why do we have Jesus' word? Here it is, Christian. I have spoken to you so that, here's the cause, here's the reason, that my joy may be in you. But wait, there's more. And that your joy may be made full. And I love the Greek word for joy. It's pleroma. It's where you and I get the English word plenty. Plenty of joy for your life. Found and wrapped in Jesus and his word. God is so serious about your joy that he speaks to you. And he is so serious about your joy that he would die to secure it for you. What other experience of pleasure in this life compares to this? Sexual union doesn't compare to this. The birth of a child, how sweet and precious, does not compare to this. No one or no thing can die for you in such a way to secure so much for you. Do you get it? Once again, if an active shooter came into this room, I pray that I would stand in front of him for you. But my death does not secure much for you. It pales in comparison to what Jesus secured for you. Jesus speaks so that his joy would be experienced in his people. And whose job and whose joy is it to create and work this into you but God the Spirit? This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus speaks about your plenteous joy, your full joy. So therefore, you and I are not going to embrace asceticism. Luckily, we're not going to make this a convent where we shy away from the world and withdraw from the world and just cloister together. That's not Christianity. And it does challenge many aspects of Christianity, the whole monastic tradition. We will not embrace stoicism, that life is just something we're going to get through. That's how a lot of men are in their pain. I just got to get through it. Versus, where can God show me the joy in it? Life is an experience of joy in Jesus. But we don't make our own selfish pursuit of joy about our own personal well-being, our own personal success, our own personal gratification. Think of Jesus who experienced joy while he was being rejected, who experienced joy as he was being crucified, who experienced joy as he was dead, and who experienced joy as he was resurrected. We make our pursuit of joy to be Jesus, who gave up his well-being for us, the very thing by which you disqualify your experience of joy. You don't experience well-being, you're not joyful today. Not Jesus. Let's go back to verse 8 now so you can see the Holy Spirit's role in all of this. Jesus begins by saying that his father's glorified by the saw. Eventually, verse 11. But look, that you bear much fruit. Galatians 5. And then look, look at this. You bearing much fruit is proof that you're a disciple. Do you see that? What is the greatest fruit that you are a Christian? It's not that you're in this room right now. That's not proof that you're a Christian. But we're glad you're here because you're putting yourself in a position to hear God's word, 
but it's not proof that you're a Christian. Walking down this aisle saying that you're a Christian isn't proof that you're a Christian. Getting baptized isn't truly proof that you're a Christian. Jesus is ultimately clear right here. What proves that you are his disciple? If you bear much fruit. What fruit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Let's look at verses 9 through 10. Then Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Conclusion? Abide in my love. You abide in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You cannot disassociate the experience of being a Christian from the word of God. And any Christian who tries to convince you of this is not being faithful to really what the gospel is. This would be a Christian. I want you to focus on the word for abide for a moment. In Greek, this word simply means to remain with something, to dwell with something. My favorite definition, which I pitched to you when we sabered through the Gospel of John, we got to this, was to take up residence. And my illustration was how people who are studying to be doctors, they do a residency in a hospital. They live there. Every inch of that hospital, they live there. And that mimics imperfectly what God does, Father and Son, and what Jesus does in you by his Spirit, because he takes up residence in you. This is a long-term developing relationship. Do you see the relationship between love in verses 9 and 10, and then he flips the script to joy in verse 11, full joy? Word, spirit, fruit, love, joy, all wrapped together right here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, then joy. It's verse 10 before verse 11. Joy is founded on the love between Father and Son. Joy is the effect of the experience of being loved by God to the death. The relationship of love that Jesus creates with his people is like the love that is experienced between Father and Son. And to experience this, Jesus is calling on you today to abide in it, to dwell in it, to remain, to linger, to take up residence in it. Therefore, Christianity is so much more than just coming to church. Christianity is a developing relationship with God who created the world, who created you, and yet he died for you. So make his love your dwelling place. Make his love your home. What does this look like? It looks like devotion to knowing, loving, and keeping his word. Only Christians want to do this. No non-Christian wakes up and says, I want to read this word, I want to love this word, and I want to do this word. No non-Christian struggles with that. Imagine for a moment that your number one, your loved one in this life passed away. Some of you have experienced this. We're all going to experience this, if you have not yet. Are we there? Are we in the moment? Let's see if you can see the joy and the pain together. Before he or she passed away, they wrote you a letter. That is all that you have left of that loved one. Are you there? What would you do with this letter? What would you do with this letter? Would you let it grow dust and never read it? Would you literally crumble it up and throw it away? Just stick it underneath your bed or something? Leave it on the dashboard in your truck for the sun to deteriorate it? What would you do with this letter? Would you neglect it? Or would you read it every single day as an expression still of that connection that exists between you and that loved one? What would you do? You cannot separate loving Jesus from reading and keeping Jesus' word. 
and every single one of you, I've known you from some years now, you all have an obstacle between reading and loving and keeping Jesus' word. You all do. And here's the thing, so do I. So I've been honest with you over the years. Monday mornings, it's hard. It's hard for me to read God's word in the mornings. I'm fleshly, just like you. We all have the obstacle. Therefore, if we all have the obstacle, we cannot use it as an excuse to reading and keeping God's word. We all have the same flesh. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. If you keep Jesus' commandments, Jesus says you will abide in his love. This desire to love and keep Jesus' word is only produced in you by his Spirit, by his indwelling. There's no such thing as a non-Christian who loves to keep Jesus' word. Non-Christians don't use language like this. So let's wrap up. Both Christians and non-Christians have a capacity for joy. They do. Non-Christians experience joy. They're an equal image bearer of God right alongside you. God is joy, and therefore you and I, we do desire joy deep down. But that experience of joy is diminished in one extreme or the other because we are broken image bearers of God. Joy is more than a feeling that you experience when you achieve that sense of well-being that you want. When all the dominoes line up and you go exactly the way that you fashioned, joy is more than that. It's more than just achieving the success that you wanted in this fiscal year. We're possessing that one thing that you believe that was going to please you, and now you got it. Joy is more than that. Because all well-being ends. Amen? Are you feeling it yet? All well-being ends. All success wanes. And pain destroys joy. But Jesus took on our sins, took on our sorrows, took on our sufferings to restore the experience of true and lasting joy to you in your hearts in him. And Jesus ensured this by fixing his eyes on future joy as he hung on the cross. So for the Christian, pain and death may try to steal your joy. It may. Oh, and ladies of heritage, I know how much you struggle with pain. And I know how much we have struggled in this church with death. They may try to steal and kill your joy, but it cannot. Because unlike secular joy, the object of our joy does not lie in you. It lies in Jesus. Therefore, Christian joy is indestructible. Amen? But this hinges on the engine and the pistons and the cylinders that are truly powering your life. Jesus' word and spirit or your word and your flesh. Jesus died and his spirit indwells you to create this adversity-conquering joy in his people. 